throughout it all, God is faithful to his covenant, to his steadfast love, and to who he is with his people. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 20th episode of Working with the Word. Today we're continuing our series on the Bible as one story with a focus on the Old Testament books of history. This includes a huge chunk of the Old Testament, 12 books to be exact. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now there's no way we can cover all of that in one episode, so today we're narrowing down our attention to Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, the books that take place in the pre-kingdom days before the monarchy was established. So we're talking about about 400 years of Israel's history. Remember, what we're doing is trying to get a handle on how each section of the Bible fits into the whole story, that God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. There's a lot in these three books that point us in that direction, but before we jump into them, let's review a little bit to get our bearings. So where are we in the whole story? How did we get here? So thinking all the way back to the book of Genesis, obviously that's where we see a lot of our beginnings. We see introduction to the main characters. We see the introduction to the plot, the conflict of the story of the Bible. We're introduced to God and Satan and mankind, and really the plot and the problem of sin. And how is God going to have relationship with man unless man chooses to completely obey him? But when man chooses to rebel against him, there needs to be some type of justice. God's going to deal with all of that. And as we continue to read the Bible and continue to study the Bible, we see how God fulfills that plan. As we're also in the book of Genesis, though, we don't want to just remember the problem of sin. We want to remember some key characters, particularly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, who's also known as Israel. And think about the covenant promises that God makes to those men. We want to see that God is going to deliver on those promises, that God is truly trustworthy, not just to these particular men and their families, but that helps us to see that God is trustworthy. If God fulfills these promises to them, then God will fulfill his promises to you and to me today. So be looking for these promises that will be fulfilled even as we'll talk about some of those being fulfilled in our material we're covering for this particular episode. Moving into the book of Exodus, we see how God delivers his people from Egyptian slavery. I love the question that Pharaoh asks in chapter 5, when he kind of arrogantly and foolishly asks, who is the Lord that I should obey him? But that's a very important question for all of us to answer. We're seeing that God, through the whole story of Scripture, reveals himself. And particularly in Exodus, he answers Pharaoh's question, I am the powerful God who's going to redeem my people. We're going to see his power through the plagues. We see his power as he comes down on Mount Sinai. We see how he loves his people and cares for them by bringing them out of that bondage. So as we think about those books of the laws, again, things we've talked about recently like Exodus through Deuteronomy, we look at this covenant and what God required of his people, how God wants his people to know him, to know how to worship him, to know how to be holy like him. We see how God expects his people to treat other people who are made in his image with this attitude of love and respect. We see how this law is a reminder that God is going to 
quote-unquote make good on his promises. We see throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there are things when they're still in Egypt or even when they get out of Egypt and they're at Sinai or even when they're wandering in the wilderness, God says things like, when you get into the land, keep this feast. Or when you settle the land, this is how you're going to settle it and this is how things are going to be divided and set up. And those are statements that aren't just hopeful, maybe they'll happen, maybe they won't, but those are sure, true things that God says, I'm going to deliver on these promises. So there's a lot that has happened from Genesis up to this point here. And with all of that, trying to remember all of those details, it's easy to forget the why behind all of this, especially when you're reading through the books of the law straight through. Everything God has done up to this point has been motivated by what he said to Abraham and trying to keep the promise to Abraham. He is going to keep it. For instance, in Exodus 2, when God looks down on his people, he sees that they are groaning, they're suffering under the burden of slavery. It says in verse 24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, obviously, it's not that God had forgotten, right? It's just that he called it to mind and he's getting ready to do something about it. And then he brings his this first generation of Israelites out. They are unfaithful to him, so he turns them back into the wilderness. The second generation arises, and in Deuteronomy 9, verse 5, Moses is reminding them of why God is bringing them into the land. He says, It is not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. In order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, time and time again, God keeps going back to what he said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those promises in Genesis 12. And really, everything in the Bible kind of goes back to that and how God is bringing about all of these events to lead us to Jesus. Uh, All of that is because of what God had said to him. And it also helps us understand, as we're going to see today, the books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, there's a lot of emphasis on the land, settling the land, conquering the land. Why? Because that's part of the promise to Abraham. I will give you this land, and you'll become a great nation. Mm -hmm. So before we get specifically into these books, let's give some overall themes. Four points for these three books. Number one, when we think about Joshua, one way to summarize this book would be to see how God's people are faithful to him. God's people obey his command to cross the Jordan River, to drive out the nations, to devote the cities to destruction that they're told to devote to destruction. And so we see God's people putting their faith and trust in him. As we turn the page into Judges, though, we see God's people are unfaithful to him. We see people who choose to, instead of trusting in God and doing what he says, a lot of times they're doing what's right in their own eyes. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we see that God makes good on his promises of the blessings and curses of what will happen if they do that throughout the book of Judges. But then we turn the page again to the book of Ruth. And this time it's not God's people that are shown for their faith, but it's a Gentile woman who is shown as faithful. Someone outside of God's family, someone outside of this covenant. Now, that's not totally unheard of by the time we get to Ruth. We know about Rahab, and we know that God is really thinking about all nations, even as he promised to Abraham. But it's amazing to see how, instead of God's people showing faith or seeing how God's people are contrasted of lacking faith in the book of Judges, in the book of Ruth, that's how a Gentile woman shows faith 
in the Lord. But the most important point out of all of these books is to really understand that throughout it all, throughout Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, through the things we just talked about from Genesis through Deuteronomy and everything from 1 Samuel on through the rest of the Bible, the most important point is to see that God is entirely faithful to what he has said. So yes, while we see in Joshua, God's people are faithful to him in that book, we see in Judges, God's people are unfaithful. We see in Ruth, a Gentile woman being faithful. Throughout it all, God is faithful to his covenant, to his steadfast love, and to who he is with his people. So let's get a little bit more specific about these books, beginning with Joshua. Joshua begins a fresh start for the people. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses has died, and Joshua rises up to take his place. In Joshua 1, the Lord tells him, Arise, take my people into the land, be strong and courageous. Joshua has been Moses' faithful sidekick for about 40 years now. And now you also have a new generation that has grown up. We're going to call this Generation B, after all of Generation A died in the wilderness. And in the early chapters of Joshua, a couple things happen that remind us of what happened 40 years earlier in Generation A's day. First of all, Joshua sent spies into the land of Canaan in kind of the same way that Moses sent spies earlier. But here in Joshua, they come back with a a message of hope and confidence. If you look at Joshua 2, these spies visit Rahab, and she tells them that the hearts of all of the inhabitants of my city, their hearts have melted. Mm -hmm. And that's very different from Deuteronomy 1, where you see Israel's heart melting in Moses' day. And so Joshua here, he's leading a people who have confidence in the Lord. And The other thing that reminds us of earlier events is that Israel crosses into the land through water. In just the same way that God parted the Red Sea for Israel to come out of Egypt, whenever they're coming into the land of Canaan, he parts the Jordan rivers for them to walk through on dry land. So Israel's time in wilderness, those 40 years we read about, is bookended by passing through water, both going into the wilderness and coming out of the wilderness into the land. And that's interesting when you trace the theme of water through the Bible. It's interesting how often God uses water in his plans to bless his people, or deliver them, or rescue, or renew them. And that helps us understand New Testament baptism better. Whenever the apostles command that we're to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, It's just what God has been doing from the beginning of time, really, to deliver his people through water. So in Joshua, we're going to see Generation B is mostly faithful where Generation A was not. In the rest of Joshua, we see two major themes developing. Number one, God wins battles for his people, and through that he gives people the land. Clearly, it's not Israel's military success or their might, but their faith in God that guarantees their success. You might remember the story of Jericho, how the people were told to surround the city, march around it for seven days on the seventh day, you know, march around it seven times and blow trumpets. It's like, that's not anything of a battle plan right there. (laughs) Clearly, the point is God is giving them the land. And then after that, as they settle and they live in the land, you see the land divided up by each tribe. Reading chapters 13 through 21 is like reading a map only without the map. You've got all these (laughs) names and places that are listed that are belonging to these tribes and these families and so on and so forth. So the important thing we need to take from this is that God is being faithful, as we've talked about, to his promises. 
So how does this fit into the whole story of the Bible? Well, in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45, it says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. One of the things I'd like to point out here in verse 44 is that the Lord gave them rest. Rest in the Bible is a peaceful, harmonious, close relationship with God. And really, this is what God has wanted since he created the world. When God created the world, he did it in six days, and then he created a seventh day to symbolize the rest that he wanted with his people. And so Israel is enjoying that rest in the land. And not only that, but they're on track to become a great nation, as God said to Abraham. And not only is rest something we see looking back, but thinking about what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 4, he talks about how Joshua led the people into the land and they found rest, but we're still looking for our ultimate rest, that ultimate peaceful relationship with God as well. That's another great theme to see that tracks throughout the whole Bible, just like I think Brother Tommy talked about in our time with him from our episode. That's right. Yeah, so that God wants us to rest in him. He wants to rest with us. And Joshua is kind of a foreshadowing of that. Like you mentioned in Hebrews, they don't experience the perfect rest. And so at the end of Joshua, we're kind of left wondering a couple things. First of all, how will Israel become a blessing to all the nations, right? We see the promise of the land is being fulfilled. They're on track to become a great nation. But how are they going to bless the surrounding nations. And also, is Israel going to enjoy this rest forever? At the end of Joshua, Joshua gives this great speech. He says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Israel says, yes, yes, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to have this rest forever. Joshua says, no, you're not going to be able to serve the Lord. And if this were the end of the story, it'd be great because you see generation B is faithful they are obedient to the Lord for the most part. But unfortunately, it's not the end of the story. And that really takes us into the book of Judges. And as we transition into the book of Judges, I actually want to think about the beginning of Joshua real quick. The beginning of Joshua, we see that Moses dies, but Joshua takes up the position to lead the people, to teach the people and instruct them about God, to really help them on that journey. At the beginning of Judges, Joshua dies, and the generation that knew God and the generation that went through the wilderness experience and the conquering of the land, they all die as well. And then what happens? Well, there's this really impactful verse in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. It begins by talking about generation B, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. But then we meet this generation C group, we're going to call them. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Think for a moment like this. We talked about Generation A. That's the group that experienced God through the plagues, through the exodus, through crossing the Red Sea, through the time at Mount Sinai, that ultimately are going to die in the wilderness. While they experienced God, they did struggle with faith, but they were able to see God's powerful work 
firsthand and to live that experience, to know how great and awesome God is. We have Generation B, which heard from those firsthand witnesses about all of those events, the crossing the Red Sea, about all of the plagues, about seeing God come down on Mount Sinai. And that group lived through the 40 years of wilderness wandering and the actual conquest and the settling of the land. But then we get to Generation C, and they're this group that's described as not knowing God. In fact, it seems all they knew was what they wanted to do. I think that they had head knowledge of God. Surely that God is just not completely an unknown name. Someone isn't talking about worshiping God or something like that. Like, whoa, God, what? I think they know (laughs) of God, yeah. But it's more about that relationship that we've been talking about. So we see they don't know God. I want to read for a moment from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 20 through 25. I think there needs to be a point made as we begin talking about the book of Judges. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 through 25. Moses says, When your son asks you in a time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand And the Lord showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And the Lord brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. I think we've even mentioned on this program before, there's the question of who failed? Was it generation B or generation C? Did generation C just not pay attention and they didn't care at all? There's probably some blame there with that. Or is it generation B? They just didn't teach the next generation as they should have. There's a book A Generation That Knows Not God by Bob and Sandra Waldron. It's kind of a teacher's manual for teaching Bible classes or small groups or things like that. And they make the point, looking at this section of Scripture and especially thinking about what happens from Joshua into Judges, and say there's a reality for all of us to understand we can't just rely on the previous generation to know who God is. And if we are, quote-unquote, the current generation, there's going to be a next generation, Lord willing, if he doesn't return or come back first, then we need to do our best to prepare that generation to find about who God is, to understand him for himself because they need to know God. That's why we've talked about in our program, finding our whys for our Bible studies. That's why we've had Brother Rick Ligon on to talk about making our faith our own, because we believe that's such an important part of growing our relationship with the Lord. Yeah, I, I think I'm seeing a theme here, even going back to Pharaoh, when he said, I do not know the Lord. You know, who is he that I should obey him? Pharaoh didn't have knowledge of God. Certainly, he did not know him from an obedient, reverent standpoint. But even this generation, as you pointed out, they may have known God's name, they may have known who he was, but it didn't change the way that they lived. And so one of the themes in the Bible is we need to know the Lord. We need to have this relationship with God where we are submitting to him, we're growing in who he is so that we can honor him in our lives. Absolutely. So two important things here as we get into this kind of side point and we leave this behind. Number one, if we are the generation that's living right now, we need to know God for ourselves. Don't rely on what were all the arguments and what were all the things that people just said before us and kind of just regurgitate those and settle with that. 
We need to do the study, do the reading, do the investigation to know God on our own. But number two, we need to do our best to be making sure we're teaching effectively the next generation, to not let them grow up not knowing the Lord, but what can we do to help them to know God? Not just to feed them answers so that they'll do what we want them to do, but that they'll know the great and awesome God that we know as well. All right. That sidebar behind, let's move into the book of Judges itself. We think about this group of people who do not know God. We've referred to them as how they were faithless to him or unfaithful to him. You may have heard of this phrase of the cycle of Judges before. I have five S words to help us remember this cycle of Judges. The first word is sin. The people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We'll usually see something like that. They're worshiping an idol or being unfaithful to God. We see, secondly, slavery, where God sells them into the service of some surrounding nation or the Canaanites they failed to drive out. We see problems from the Moabites or the Amalekites or the Philistines or the Ammonites or or any other people where God uses them to judge his people. Just like he said in Deuteronomy, there are blessings and curses for not obeying. And some of those curses are you're going to be defeated and kind of oppressed by the nations around you. So our third S word then is supplication, where the people cry out to God for help. Now, some people think this being repentance, although when we read these sections of scriptures where God's people cry out to him, it it really seems to me more like it's just like whining about the situation they've gotten themselves into. God, we're really sad that the Philistines are afflicting us and they're stealing our food and things like that. Very rarely do we seem to see any type of we've actually done wrong and we seek your forgiveness from it. But through this crying out, through this supplication, our fourth S word is salvation, where God raises up a deliverer or a judge. These are simply, most often, just military leaders who are going to fight battles. And then finally, our last S word is security, where the land had rest, that's our word from earlier, for so many years. So think about those words. In most of these stories, we think about Othniel or Deborah or Ehud or Samson. We're seeing some of these or all of these parts of the cycle being described. The sin, the slavery, the supplication, the salvation, the security. But I've heard it said before that really the book of Judges isn't just a cycle, but it's really more like a downward spiral. I think I've heard someone before call it a toilet bowl when thinking (laughs) about how these judges, especially from Gideon through Samson, seem to really be worse than the one before. We see more character flaws. We see more issues with what the people are doing and with the deliverers themselves. Think about that. Everything's just a downward spiral leading to how terrible things are. It's not just a cycle, but it's really a toilet bowl of wickedness. And then that leads us to our last couple of chapters, chapter 17 through 21. Some people think this material might have come earlier in the days of the judges rather than being you know, after Samson or something like that. The point that we see from these chapters, though, the point that these chapters are really pointing to drive out is just how bad things were in these days. In chapters 17 and 18, we begin with the story of a thief that ends up trying to set up his own idol worship in his household that leads to Moses' own grandson facilitating idol worship for an entire tribe. But then we read in Judges chapter 19 through 21 how the beginnings of just a marital problem leads to a woman being raped to death, which leads to civil war, which leads to an entire tribe almost being wiped out by other Israelites. We think about the final verse of this book, Judges 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's really what we're seeing is that people are just thinking about themselves. So our whole story connection for the book of Judges is that we need a good king 
who will help the people know the Lord. We obviously should be thinking Jesus. Jesus is our king who helps us to know who God is. We don't want to be a generation that doesn't know God. We want to be people that do know God. And we want a king who is going to help us, not just some short-term deliverer like a judge, but a king who is a good king who can help us to know him. I think for me personally, Judges is one of the hardest books to read, not so much because it's boring or it's tedious, but because, you know, at the end of that book, you've got those stories that are just terrible. This story about this concubine who is raped and mistreated, and her husband, it's almost like he has no care for her. After this group of men gang rape her, she comes back to the doorstep, she just kind of lays there, and he says to her, get up, let's go. It's like, you don't have any care for her. The point is, as you've made to show us the downward spiral of sin that began way back in Genesis. And this is how bad sin gets whenever there is no king, whenever there is no obedience. And so, yeah, it really helps us become more appreciative of the fact that sin is terrible and we need someone who can deliver us from that sin. And of course, that is Jesus. Absolutely. And another point I'd like to make relating to the whole story is thinking about how terrible sin is. We might think that God would have just seen all the events in the days of the judges and just thought, well, this is over, and ended the whole story there, and humans, you know, you've lost your chance. You are just terrible people. But we see that God really wants to have a relationship with his people. And how do we know? I mean, think about the golden calf. Think about the wandering in the wilderness. Think about Korah's rebellion. Think about this here, 400 years of this dumpster fire of God's people's relationship with him and just being terrible. And God is not cruel for punishing his people when they sin or refuse to repent when we see, and that's just God's nature. We read about in Exodus 34 and verse 7, how he will not remove the iniquity from those who refuse to repent. But we see that God is regularly showing his steadfast love. That's also described in Exodus 34 verse 6 by continually reaching out to them over and over and over again even though they do not deserve it. You're absolutely right, Emerson. This is a hard book to read because of all the just wicked things and terrible choices that people make. But it's an amazing book to really understand God's love. That may be something that we struggle to see, but think about God's love really being shown through the way that he is patient and loving and forgiving his people throughout this book. And it's in the days of the judges, in the days of war, rape, violence, murder, adultery, all those being common and regular things, not just among the people around them, but among God's people, we have the story of Ruth. The book Ruth begins with, in the days when the judges ruled. You know, and this is a classic love story. Maybe when we're familiar with Ruth, we think of a love story. And just like all love stories begin, we begin with famine and death, right? (laughs) That's how we all remember our favorite rom-com starting off. But this does have a lot of classic love story elements. You've got noble characters like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are, you just kind of know they're going to end up together. You've got the kind of meet-cute scenes in chapter 2 and chapter 3 where Ruth and Boaz find out who each other are and realize there's interest there. We see that there's this he is the one speech. There's this connection, realize that Boaz is definitely the guy for Ruth. But then you've got, like in a lot of good romantic movies or romantic comedies, the act 2 into act 3, there's this other guy that gets in the way. The old fiancé shows up, or some you know new character swoops in, or maybe the original guy just kind of you know messes up and ruins the whole situation for himself. He has to work his way back. There's this other redeemer who's closer in the story of Ruth that you know, could possibly choose to redeem her. But instead, we see our happily ever after from our classic love story where Ruth and Boaz get married. 
we skipped a lot of the specific details with that, but we see what's going on there. We see, most importantly from this book, again, Ruth's faith. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, Ruth makes this statement, not to Boaz, but makes this statement to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Listen to the things she has to say. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Listen to how she confirms this statement. She says, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. In the middle of those statements, or maybe you could say towards the end of all of those, your fill-in-the-blank becomes my fill-in-the-blank, Ruth has established that you know it's not just her relationship with Naomi, but Ruth has apparently come to know Naomi's God has made him her God. And we see that even the way that she confirms this promise to her that she's not going to leave her by saying, the Lord do so more to me. You see that in the story of Ruth, Ruth's faith, as well as the fact that there is a redeemer through this man, Boaz. So our whole story connection, I think, is most importantly not just this is a love story. This is a story of redemption. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. We think about the redemption there, and it's hard for me to not think about Jesus with that. I'm not saying that that's a direct, you know, shadow or, you know, type, anti-type stuff. I'm not sure I'm comfortable using that vocabulary, but I read that verse and I'm immediately thinking of my Redeemer and how he gives me life, just as Naomi was given life again, even though, you know, her sons were dead. Ruth is definitely a book of hope, right? Mm -hmm. And hope in a time when things are so dark in Israel, and it really just goes to show back to our our beginning point that God is faithful even when his people are uh, are unfaithful. God is working behind the scenes and one of the things I like about Ruth is how you see God's providence, God's hand kind of working behind the scenes, not up front. God is never, you know, it's never said God does this specifically, mm-hmm. but he's working providentially to bring about the blessings that he has promised to his people. Exactly. We see that God is going to be bringing people of faith into his family. He's going to be bringing Ruth to be part of his family, even though she's not part of the family of Israel. Ruth's very much going to play a big part into the story of God's plan about bringing people back to himself, redeeming people to himself through his own son, Jesus Christ. So that point of the importance of faith really shows itself in the book of Ruth. Mm -hmm. And then a final side point with kind of a whole story connection or maybe some applications. We really learn what a law-keeping Jew should look like through people like Boaz. We don't see people who are trying to rape women or committing violence or are worshiping idols, but here we see people who fear God, who know what the law is. I mean, Boaz, when he is you know, doing work in his field or having people work in his field, he leaves things for those who are poor and needy, for orphans and widows. We see Boaz being a man of kindness, very contrasted to you know, even think about the man with his concubine from the, the previous book of Judges and how he treated her. And so while we're not trying to be law-keeping Jews, the ideas of kindness and respect for God's Word, even when the rest of the world around us could literally not care less about what God's Word has to say, those are principles we still would do well to adapt into our lives. Yeah, and if I can insert one other thing about Ruth that I like, Ruth, as you've pointed out, is a Gentile, and God 
is going to use this Gentile woman. And she's kind of a foreshadowing of how God is going to bless all the people, all the nations of the earth through this nation. And so she's just kind of a, she's an important character because she connects way back to Abraham's promise that all of the nations are going to be blessed. This isn't just a blessing for Israel and for this group of people, but it's for all people. And Ruth is kind of a foreshadowing of that. So thinking about our to be continued, obviously this isn't the end of the story. Ruth's a great book of hope and it's a nice, you know, lovely book to read, fairly short book to read, but there's still more to be covered. Think about Ruth chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Who's David? Is he the promised seed we've been hearing about and looking for? While the land and nation promise seems to have pretty well been taken care of by this point, what about that promise of the offspring through whom the whole world will be blessed? What about that seed of the woman who's going to overcome and crush the head of the serpent? Well, we just have to stay tuned and continue to see the whole story. How God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to him through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So let's finish up today with a challenge. As we think about what we wanted to share with you and challenge you to do, I couldn't think of any better place to point you than to Joshua 23 and 24, one of the greatest speeches in the Bible. In Joshua 23 and 24, we want to encourage you to read that because there's not only a great summary of Israel's history up to this point, but it's extremely motivating, especially when you get to chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we want you to read Joshua 23 and 24 and ask yourself, how does this motivate me to serve the Lord? And maybe write down one or two things that you need to do to recommit yourself to God. Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. We'll continue our orbit of the historical section of the whole story next week, considering the periods of the kings. Our focus will mainly be on the events as described in 1 Samuel through 2 Kings. Until then, if there are questions, topics, or books of the Bible you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.